Welcome to the Future Perfect Podcast, where we talk with compelling people breaking new ground in art, media, and entertainment. This podcast is produced by Future Perfect Studio, an extended reality studio creating immersive experiences for global audiences. Episodes are released every two weeks. Visit our website, futureperfect.studio, for more details. I'm Wayne Ashley, founder and creative director of Future Perfect. This week, we interview Aria Harvey, a prolific artist producing simulations and sculptures that bridge both physical and digital spaces. Over the past decades, she has produced net art, online performances, video games, and sculptures that blend digital and handmade production. Harvey's work can be found in the collections of the Walker Art Center, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, Contemporary Art Museum of Luxembourg, and Rhizome's Net Art Anthology. Her video games and VR projects have been exhibited in venues all over the world. Thank you. Thank okay. you for participating in our podcast. Sure, glad to be here. You and I you. have such a long overlapping history going back to the mid-90s with the emergence of net art. I was extremely inspired by your work, which was so personal and tactile, specifically your online journals composed of these sumptuous collages, poetry, photography, drawing, painting, and 3D sculptural elements. Already one can see how passionate you were creating dialogues between analog and digital production, which I completely connect to. For you, there was no hierarchy between these two. When I look at the extraordinary depth of work that you've created over the past two and a half decades, I can easily tease out a history of the internet and digital culture with all its promises of emancipation and boundless creativity, as well as its many discontents, which we'll get into shortly. But first, I, I want to go back to the, the, the beginnings of, of your practice. You studied sculpture at Parsons School of Design before learning web design and then founded the game studio Tale of Tales. How did you make that leap from sculpture to net art? Oh, wow. <laughs> I would say that um, I not only studied sculpture, uh, but I also studied design to a certain extent, although I was a bit of an autodidact at it um, for a long time. Um, meaning that uh, my main skill was computers um, in addition to sculpture. So the fact that I was so passionate about computers really led me directly into this confrontation. Well, okay, love of computers and lack of space, uh, being a young person in New York City in the um, early 90s. And, and it, when I found the internet, um, it immediately struck me um, that everything I could do online was a sculpture. You know, it was a time of this like broadening, you know, of these definitions of what a sculpture could be. You know, it's like there were people who were like, is video sculpture? Is installation sculpture? You know, yeah. this was, it seems obvious now, but at the time it was very much a question. And so I looked at the internet and said, is the internet sculpture? <laughs> and, yes. and so to me, this became like a kind of a, a seeking, you know, for the ways in which uh, the internet was sculpture. And in some ways that sculpture was social. In some ways that sculpture was, um, it was this multimedia interactive, like, uh, you know, landscape that was totally unexplored. And that was really interesting for me. 
Um, so for our audiences who may not know very much about net art, can you say a little bit about what that was uh, as a field <laughs> of artistic production? Um, I mean, did you identify with that word yeah. net art? Uh, yes and no. Um, for me, net art was primarily something that was going on in Europe um, based around like web um, mailing lists at the time, like net time and syndicate and other ones that are lost to the sands of time. Um, but these, this was something that was primarily, yeah, people trying to communicate about ways to create um, artwork, uh, networked artwork, you know, but it was very much in a lot of ways, like primarily in my opinion, it was about this conversation about technology, about the internet, about, you know, which was not exactly what I wanted to do and not something that I even made. Um, I joined the arts collective uh, hell.com. Uh, I don't remember what year, but probably mid nineties, sometime 96 possibly. Um, and the cool thing about hell.com was it was really, really open. It was really about like, it wasn't even about net art. It was more just like, how can we like, like create the most mysterious um, messed up website, you know, high tech website that it could possibly exist or high tech, like more like, uh, how can we bewilder everyone, you know? Um, and, um, yes. and so that's where I hooked up with Michael Samin and, um, we started Intrapiate Super, which was our website. And that was never what we call, we would never have called that net art at the time. I mean, uh, retrospectively, definitely, I would say that's what it was. But, um, at the time for us, it was really everything. It was, it was a place where we got, uh, work designing websites for other people as well as designers. It was also where we told stories, um, interactive stories and tried to use technology in ways that people, um, didn't expect at the time. Um, like we had online performances, we, um, yeah, like we, we had a pay-per-view website. We had, <laughs> we did all kinds of stuff, but I would say it was, um, so this is getting a little off track, but. No, 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 um, it's good. Asking me about net art, you know, because to me, net art is like, you know, you think of the grand, uh, you know, net artists of the time, like Olia Lialina, you know, uh, or uh, Bukosic, or, um, you know, even Leah, um, Leah, who does still still very active today in generative art, like uh, all these people who I admired their work, it always felt like I was trying to do something completely different from them, though. Um, yeah, and, and I can just describe to, what that is. But <laughs> no, it's good because um, out of this, you started doing online performance, which you just brought up, and yeah. I want to talk to you about because this is like back in 1999 um, yeah. when we brought you to Brooklyn Academy of Music to perform. I right. think it was um, was it Skin on Skin. Or wire no, it fire. was Wirefire. It was okay. Wirefire. Can you talk about, I mean, it's great because you even charged a fee. And that's, you know, we're talking about, you know, 20, 22 years ago, you were already thinking about the internet well, as a place what to we were do thinking performance. About. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, Wirefire was always open. Um, the other one you mentioned, Skin on Skin on Skin, that was the pay-per-view. And that one was... Uh, not in real time. Wirefire was very much a real time performance where Michael and I um, met every week. Um, we had started it before we even lived together. Like when I was still in New York City and he was in Belgium, we created it as a way to communicate with one another. It was, um, you know, if you rewind and think back, the only way you could really talk to someone back then through the internet was via text. Um, and there was no video, there was no audio really. Um, 
you know, and so we thought text was completely inadequate and both of us being um, very adept at internet languages uh, decided to create this system where we could communicate with each other through um, using animation, through anything, you know, basically we could upload sounds, animations, um, we could have real-time chat, we could invite the audience because we invited other people to be a part of these uh, conversations with us. Um, we could offer them a way to interact into other performance and everyone could see it at the same time. And this was something that was kind of unheard of in 1999 or very rare. Um, and we did this from 1999 till I think around 2003. Um, and the site is still there and it sort of has a documentation of all the places. We also took it live, you know, after he and I started living together. Um, we, we started doing these things live also because it, it creates a big spectacle. Um, and uh, something I'm really proud of that we did. Nice, yeah. So <laughs> with the emergence of what has been called Web 2.0, you stopped mm -hmm. making um, oh, yeah, absolutely. work. What happened? It, uh, what was it? What, what happened with Web 2.0 that you felt that you needed to move on? Well, the beauty of the early web, you know, as many Web 1.0 people will say, was that it was this very big time of innocence. Um, and I would say that with this, it started with blogging. That was the beginning of the end. That was like the end of it all for me because I, uh, I felt like it why? was taking away because it felt like it was taking away the power of uh, computing from people. It wasn't made, you know, people, it did open it up to a different subset of people, but I felt that those people should learn how to program HTML. I felt like this was like very empowering and um, that I could see that this was a slow, like eating away at, um, at um, people's ability to see the computer for what it was, which was um, an open, a box of tricks, like, and you could pull out any of those and use them. In any, in any number of ways and slowly over the years, indeed, you've seen the closing down, you know, to the point where now websites for whites, they have a hamburger menu on the side, you know, there's expected to be like good navigation, I'm making air quotes, um, you know, it's like, uh, whereas we were all about crashing the browser and making people think, you know, um, and, you know, of course, there were bad actors who took advantage of a lot of the freedom that um, the web had to offer. But it seems to me like there were better solutions than Web 2.0 uh, turned out to be. Uh, Things became was, much more templatized as well. Yeah, templatized. Um, people are basically ignorant about what they can do with their computers now, you know, because it's not about computers. It's about phones. It's not about computers. It's about using services. It's about subscriptions. It's not about building anything, you know, and so it's, um, you know, only a few people still do this activity, you know, and even that is made more and more complicated. Um, you know, uh, we'll talk about this more maybe, but um, made more complicated through the way that uh, corporations have controlled the computing environment and the internet and our interactions on it. And anyway, back then I could see that coming, let's say, and I, I was like, no, we're out of here. Let's do something else. We're out of here. Because, uh, yeah. Does we're, that out some, <laughs> yeah. That we're out of here. Does that something else we're lead you? Does, does that something else lead you into gaming? Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, I want to read. I want to. I want to read something. Um, sure. Um, from a manifesto you wrote with Michael. 
Um, now, this is like 16 years ago, but I just want to read this. And, and I think this will form a kind of way for you to discuss about this whole new transformation into, into working with gaming. This is from Gaming Realities, The Challenge of Digital Culture. So this is what you wrote. Real-time 3D is the most remarkable new creative technology since oil on canvas. It is much too important to be wasted on computer games alone. This manifesto is a call to arms for creative people, including but not limited to video game designers and fine artists to embrace this new medium and start realizing its enormous potential, as well as a set of guidelines that express our own ideas and ideals about using the technology. It is much too important to remain in the hands of toy makers and propaganda machines. We need to rip the technology out of their greedy claws and put them to shame by producing the most stunning art to grace this planet so far. And claim the name game for what we do, even if it is inappropriate. Love hearing that. But then I want to ask, what did you want to accomplish with this manifesto? And then talk about that. And then, <laughs> and then, because this goes right into why suddenly gaming became this like really incredible arena for you yeah. to explore and experiment. <sighs> what do we want to yeah. accomplish? Well, um, we really saw video games as an interactive art form that it was, but this was 2002, 2003. And so Video games didn't know that yet, <laughs> you know, but we just looked at it. And we were like, this is interactive. This is art. People spend hours, 20 hours, like playing a video game. Like you can't get that with a painting, you know, or a performance or a performance or a performance or yeah, exactly. Nothing, you know, this is um, incredible. Commitment I guess opera. And and dedication to, um, to attending to something, especially in this kind of, you know, attention economy. I mean, if you're talking performance, you know, maybe opera, you know, some Wagnerian, you know, three-day fest. Four hours. Four, you know, but still, it was, to us, this was, this was amazing and unheard of in, in a certain sense. And we had been playing a lot of video games and, and we didn't understand them at first. We, we played them and we were just like, well, why is this what they're doing with this technology? It, just, it was like we, visited, we were visiting an alien planet and, and we did, could not compute why this was the only thing that was happening were RPGs with random battles, uh, fighting games, driving games, uh, adventure games. There were like several just genres that you had to fit into in order to um, make and sell a video game at that time, right? There are, of course, exceptions, but this was pretty much the world we were walking into. So when we gave that uh, manifesto, which is called the Real-Time Art Manifesto, we really thought that the most re remarkable thing here was that you were making something that was like the internet in a way. It was real-time communication. It was a, you know, re action, reaction, response. You know, people could be inside a world. When you played a video game, you were completely lost in it. You were, um, even, you know, now you would look at it in, in a certain video games and you wouldn't understand what was so special about that world, you know. But at the time when you played it, it and even now when you play video games, of course, it's like being inside a book, but like more real. You know, it's more, um, you feel it. Uh, it feels real. And, and that was what was important to us. Uh, and um, it was something I had experienced with early VR, uh, for example, um, but more so 
in a certain way because it was these works of imagination. Now, our problem was the imagination that we saw within video games seemed extremely limited. And we wanted to be able to use for ourselves, but encourage others also to look at video games as something that was wide open. That was, again, that, that box of tricks that you could just do whatever you wanted with, you know, literally. It's like, come on, creators, you can do anything with this. You can make any world, you know. And we were some of the first to really make a point of this. Um, there was a there was a, a, a undercurrent in game studies at that time in 2006 when we gave Real-Time Art Manifesto um, that was trying to point this out, let's say. But there were no, there were very few examples. And so we really uh, devoted ourselves to creating that example and encouraging other people to change their thinking around video games. And we threw in that last part, you know, even if the word game is inappropriate, because people were eager for us to name this, to change, you know, there was a big discourse at the time around what is a game you know and we thought that was the most boring shit ever we were like we're not doing that we're not talking semantics this is real stuff here you know so we were just like it's a video game but it's like you know that's it you know um and uh so we we just started our little journey there <laughs> with the manifesto dropping that on everyone oh i and, like that um, and it was it was quite a controversy uh, at the time uh, to say these what was, things. What was controversial about it? Well, the thing we had to learn about gamers was that they uh, quickly feel like you're coming for their stuff. They quickly feel like you're coming. They had a there was a lot of discussion back then. Maybe there still is. I don't know about do games cause violence? You know, and everyone was kind of down on gaming. You know, oh, it's for kids. Oh, it's you know, it's um, dangerous. You know, you had the United States Army with their recruitment game. You had you know yeah. all these things. Uh, people were testing the limits, uh, both psychologically and um, aesthetically, of what a game could be at starting at that moment. And yeah. um, and so gamers could be very touchy about this subject of what is a game also. So if you try to, um, we never tried to take anything away was the thing. We were always like, no, we're just trying to add something to that, you know. But um, gamers often were feeling uh, sensitive about, <laughs> about their Mario. And I couldn't stand it if you like dared to disdain, um, you know, these these types of games. And we disdained a lot. But out of that, you, you produced several games and one of them, The Endless Forest. Can you describe, I mean, this is probably, according to your words, one of the, one of the most successful games that you've created. I mean, it continues yeah. to circulate and you're currently developing a new mm -hmm. version with Unreal. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what it is like to play or to experience um, The Endless Forest. The Endless Forest was the only game we had released in uh, as of 2006. Uh, we had created another prototype, uh, but The Endless Forest was the game we released, a uh, multiplayer game uh, where everyone plays a deer in a forest. It was ultimately meant to be this very peaceful gesture at a time when everyone was playing World of Warcraft. Remember that game? 
um, everyone was playing World of Warcraft, you know, um, and, and we made this game as sort of the antidote to that. It was something we felt people who played World of Warcraft could dip into for like five minutes or something. <laughs> anyway, and, you know, the thought of playing a game. Yeah, yeah. The thought of playing a game for a short amount of time in 2005 was also, you know, I say that like the fact that people would play games for hours and hours was what drew me to games. But at the same time, once I got there, it felt like, well, you know, people need experiences that they only play for like five minutes, 10 minutes that they can come to a world that's always there for them. But they go there and it's not about killing. It's not about points. It's not about gaining anything. It's just about being there and feeling it. And so when you're in the endless forest, you're there and you feel like an animal. You feel like a deer running through a forest and it's very joyful and it's funny. And you run into other animals in the forest and those are all people playing the game. And you sort of have to make up a language because there's no chat in the game. And that was the big innovation <laughs> was that you couldn't talk to each other. You could only... Um, <laughs> make noises or sort of dance or you know but you find things in the forest you play together in the forest whatever you want that was the other thing was there were no rules so you had to sort of make up people make up their own rules about the world they make up their own stories there were songs written about the endless forest tons of stories artworks mm. created about the endless forest wow. people made friends in the forest people died and had memorials in the forest, oh. <laughs> like, you know, any other multiplayer game, um, except for this one was a very um, specific um, fantasy about nature and utopia, I suppose. And it was our hope that people would take all this uh, beauty and feeling of uh, joy and, I don't know, and take that out into the real world in their interactions with other people and understand that you don't really have to understand each other exactly to understand, each other, you know, like, so it was, uh, this was the, the goal. And I think it was, it was very successful because people are still playing it. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's always been free. Um, and we've kept it that way all through the ideas of monetization and, uh, and, you know, um, because for us, it was, uh, kind of like, don't, don't break something that isn't broken. <laughs> like, uh, uh, let people enjoy something, you know, <laughs> which is again, gonna... that anti, anti web 2.0 thinking, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. You're going to, um, relaunch this as, in, as a new version, updated yeah. version. When is that coming out? Um, the beta is out already. Um, and, uh, we don't know when it'll be fixed because it's one of those done when it's done kind of things since we're sort of doing this, um, in our, uh, as a side thing, we decided to remake it, um, and it, it wasn't necessary exactly. We're just worried about it um, eventually, the technology failing on us. So we wanted to make sure we had um, found a way to make the endless forest truly endless. We just remake it. And you're remaking it in Unreal Engine. Yeah, in Unreal How's Engine. How's that been for you? Um, I haven't had much to do with it, actually. It's all Michael. He's the man. Okay. He's like, he's rebuilt the whole thing. It's, wow. it's an exact replica <laughs> of, of what was there before, only in Unreal. So it offers us more opportunities because we used to do Wirefire, which we talked about earlier. We, we created a system in the Endless Forest called a Biogenesis, which also was a, is a live, real-time performance engine that's in the game. And mm. previously... Um, in the past, we used to have parties in the forest all the time um, where we would invite people to come and Michael and I would swoop into the game as um, these special characters, the twin gods, and we would um, 
make things happen in the forest that normally don't happen. Like, uh, yeah, lightning, um, big storms of flowers, uh, all kinds of um, strange things would happen um, during these performances. And um, we would like to do that again. So um, now that it's being rebuilt in Unreal, something that's a little more performant, uh, we can make that happen again. Nice. So question about the manifesto looking back at this manifesto what would you change does it does it still resonate with you oh it still totally resonates with me we've actually re added uh been asked a couple of times to um revisit it um once like maybe like five or six years ago around the show at the victoria and albert museum i don't remember yeah. how many years ago that was yeah. um but um so it's in the catalog of that show, which was called Video Games. Um, uh, video Games, oh, Create, Play, something else. I forget now. <laughs> we'll yeah. add the title later. Sure, um, we can do that. Create, Play, Disrupt. That was it. Um, and uh, so we, we did revisit it, the manifesto then. Um, and we've been asked again <laughs> recently for another show uh, to, to revisit this. Um, I actually, in spite of all the ways we might add to it or take away from it, I actually think it's perfect the way it is. And it still says a lot of, I mean, it is a product of its time, which was 2006. So um, I like that it's this artifact from that time. Um, and there's nothing I really want to change about it. I mean, I don't disagree. <laughs> I still don't so disagree. With all you know? this excitement then about video games and its its artistic and social possibilities, you stopped making video games why did yeah, you stop I, I, making video games um yeah i stopped making video games because i felt that we had said all that we had to say through the format of the commercial video game that is sold through an online store people download and play on a pc um for me you know the part of the the manifesto that i never let go of that i felt was the key to that whole manifesto is the real-time part that real-time art like to me, the internet, when I was making websites, that was the important thing. It was real time. People were there all connected to the same page. At the same time, we made several works that were just visualizing this fact. Now we take it for granted that when you're on Twitter, everybody's sitting there on Twitter, you know. But back then, it was very special to say, look, you know, there's someone else here on this page, you know. Um, and so that real time aspect was something we took it we took from games this notion that things are being executed you know 60 frames a second or whatever and it's like this real-time moment even if someone else isn't there with you you are there with the virtual creature you know and that virtual creature is reacting to you in real time so i stopped making video games because in some ways also it felt like um the world of gaming of video games um was sort of getting in my head a little too much and I couldn't, um, way. yeah, in a very negative way, like because it was a business we were running and I didn't feel like uh, being a business person on the other, on one hand, on the other hand, um, dealing with the, um, with the audience part became like a much more uh, bigger task uh, and, and it's kind of, and sometimes a really unpleasant one. Um, and um, not, not so much for the players of our games, but just in general, like the whole, way in which games were created um, and sold and marketed became um, something that I couldn't agree with um, after a while. Um, we made our last video game in 2015, a game called Sunset, 
which had a very strong um, political message uh, that was in some ways over people's heads and we knew it was going to be, uh, but at the same time, it was also um, kind of like our final say, like the last thing we could say um, about video games was we're going to try to make a game that's kind of um, normal on the one hand, you know, being that it was just a first person game played like other first person games. But at the same time, how can we um, use this to get across this message by, yeah, a political message uh, um, about the time that we live in by talking about the past? It was it's a very complex game. And I think it ended up being so complex because um, because we were somewhat um, we knew what we were doing, but at last, you know, um, in making a video game for the longest time, we felt like we didn't know what we were doing, but we knew exactly how to make a game in a year, how to stay under budget, how to put together a team, how to, how to market it, you know, everything. And it just felt like, okay, this is complete. But then all, everything we wanted to say came out in a rush, you know, every, in a, in a sense came out like, you know, it's, this game is about this and this and this and this. It was like trying to put together uh, a very intricate like puzzle and 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 make it something that people could explore and um and it just felt like you know maybe this doesn't need to be a game for once the first time you know after all the years of people telling us did that really need to be a game you know it's mm. like yeah it has to be a game but then it suddenly felt like does this really have to be a game and so um it just really felt like it was time to do something else there's also trauma right there's a whole bunch of yeah, trauma yeah. going on around games. There was a lot of stuff going on around games at that time um, and a bit earlier, I'd say from 2013, you know, there was a lot of controversy uh, in indie gaming circles about people, you know, because a lot of people were making video games. As I said, gamers can be really touchy about their, their stuff and they felt like um, there was this influx of people making games that were about subjects that uh, were very, very new uh, to the world of video games. You know, you had a lot of queer game makers making games about being queer. Hey, you know, all of our games had female protagonists. That was still a very strange thing to do, you know, even even 10 years after we started making video games. You know, it was um, they're making games that were explicitly political or explicitly, um, even explicitly about nothing. You know, like the biggest shit fight the games industry ever saw was probably over walking simulators games about being depressed or something you know what i mean and like this is the atmosphere that really made me want to stop making games because it's just like i who was believing and started making games because i felt they could be anything now that people were were actually making games that were about anything you know were being attacked basically um by the a certain subset of the gaming community, let's call it that, and it was just really um, I toxic. found that um, toxic, and uh, I wasn't having it. So again, I said that's enough of that, <laughs> you know. But it, it had been thirteen years, you know. It's like it was a beautiful career to have, and I was really it, it took me places I never thought I would go, you know. But at the same time, um, there were. Uh, getting older is interesting and it felt like, you know, there are things I want to do with my life that don't have anything to do with this. So why am I putting up with a, with a, a toxic environment? Yes. And then you had this crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Where you yeah of, 
Well, I'd say earlier, earlier than, than even that. Um, Cause like I said, we made the last game in 2015, even as early as 2011, it, it, there was this aspect of under, trying to understand uh, what is, um, what is it about computers that, uh, that I, that had attracted me all those years. And I think I had hit a moment of complete and total burnt out burnout when I was trying to make um, certain ideas work um, within um, a computer, you might say. And I, I just couldn't even look at my computer for a while. All I could do was draw, you know, it's like, draw, and it was all about paper and charcoal and graphite and like very simple things. And that was all I could do. I sat in a chair and I read books on paper. I like, I, 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 but it was very, very real, you know, and I, I just want everyone out there, you know, know it like burnout happens and burnout is the real thing. And you can't, um, you can't even like um, understand it until it happens to you, I guess. Someone who had been a complete and total like computer geek my whole life, you know, it just really hit me hard. Yeah. And then you have this like really interesting kind of pivotal moment um, in Poland. Um, oh, right, right. So that was which after, I, Which yeah. I'm totally excited about because... In our conversations previously, you talk about um, the work of Polish director um, Tadeusz Kantor and this yeah. residency you had in 2017. Yeah, um, yeah this was 2017. That sounded like this kind of really interesting re-engagement with the potential of computation, with uh, VR. Um, what was it yeah. about Tadeusz's work, Kantor's work, that um, moved you and re-inspired you? Ah, well, <laughs> at first it didn't, of course, <laughs> you know, it's like, so we had stopped, you know, we'd left what we felt was a toxic environment, but that toxic environment was still in our heads, you might say, like, <laughs> we still didn't understand how to just be artists again and not be these people involved in this business, you know, um, industry, games industry, you know, so what we did was we accepted an offer, a very strange offer that we got from the Polish uh, Ministry of Culture, which was to come to Poland. Um, and um, and take part in this residency um, through the Tadeusz Kanta Foundation, where they were opening up his summer home um, to artists to come and live there and create work. And they sent us all of his videos, uh, videos of his performances, excuse me. Um, and uh, we watched them and I was completely shocked, <laughs> open mouth, uh, flabbergasted, because I was just like, what is this? <laughs> it was so, and a whole other a whole other world, a whole other thing. And it took a while for me to really parse it. And I would love that. I loved the fact that it did something to my brain that my brain was not ready for. You know, even though these were performances that happened in the 90s, 80s, I don't know. You know, it was, it was beautiful. 70s. Before, 70s. Yes, like, I don't know, yeah. help, you know. Yeah. But it was, it was crazy. <laughs> and it, it was really um, something that I didn't, I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't deal with. So at first I rejected it and was just like, no, we can't. Do this. I don't, I, I don't know what this is, you know, <laughs> but then the more we watched him uh, perform and his other performers and the way that he was interacting with them on stage was sort of an inspirational moment, a moment of us going, what this is the same, you know, it's like, he's directing this, this real, very real time performance, you know, very much moving people, his actors around the stage, very much, emotionally involved in every single line, you know, um, he is there on the stage, you know, and, and we felt that, um, 
this could translate into VR <laughs> and uh, in some ways. Uh, well, he was also it, doing it objects us. and mannequins yeah. and um, materials um, and not just the, humans, but the thing, yeah. The, the, the difference between the two was the thing that really did it for us, was that for him, there was no difference between a doll and an actor and a human actor. And that reminded us, okay, well, what is that in, in, in 3D? Like it, when you make a world, you know, what makes one thing alive and another thing not alive, you know? And, 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 it, and it, in a way, it's just all programming. So when the, in the piece we made, um, Creek Autori, uh, which we started um, at the his summer home in the, you know, um, in the middle of the woods and then outside Krakow in uh, Poland, um, in this really creepy house. I mean, it wasn't just creepy, it was beautiful, but it was also, you know, he's got this giant chair outside, one of his works of art, it's a big chair. Um, uh, and and it, it was just really an interesting way to, to make a difference uh, between what we were doing before and what we were hoping to do now. Um, VR was something we knew we wanted to experiment with as a way of getting out of uh, our normal computing uh, mode. Also, we liked the fact that when you put on the VR headset, you're really there. It's not so much about imagination, but about um, tangible facts, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, uh, and so we wanted to make performances. Uh, we saw VR as something nobody's ever going to have the equipment at home or very few people. So it's perfect for um, actually staging things. We wanted to create installations around our VR. Um, we still do. Um, the, the pandemic somewhat squashed our, uh, our momentum with VR. But at the time uh, when we were doing the uh, Creek Autry project, we ended up staging it at the... Um, uh, Palace of Science and Culture, I think it's called, in Warsaw at a theater there. Um, we also had a showing in a gallery in Krakow, which was really wonderful. We had a few other showings of it, also in Basel at the Musée Tancholi. Um, what did these? What did these work? What did these <clears throat> presentations involve? Putting on headsets or what? Yeah, but we always had a certain floor. It had to have a wooden floor of a certain size uh, or larger. Uh, there was a minimum and maximum um, because what happens is when you're in the world, you're in a theater. So it's like you're not only are you physically in a theater, uh, but also in the headset, you're in a theater. Um, and uh, there's one thing which is with a prop. We had access to all of Cantor's props uh, via the Krikoteca, um, his, the museum of his work. We were able to go through all the archives, see all the um, rehearsal footage, like everything. It was really amazing yeah, um, to see amazing. an artist. I guess his artistry touched me um, also. is like he was a completely different type of artist than us. Um, and we felt something. We felt really um, touched by the way he created his work. Yeah. Especially at the time that he made it, you know, it was a time of great adversity um, for Poland. And, um, and I don't know, it, it just, uh, so we have one of his props. I went in and I 3D scanned a lot of his props. I, uh, and we recreated them um, actual size. And then we played with that scale because we're digital. We can make things different sizes. <laughs> um, but you, you, you basically are fronted with a, with a wardrobe, which is one of the big uh, symbols of his work. And, and when you open the wardrobe, um, you're, you're there with his hands, basically. You're using his hands to interact with the objects. world and grab things. And you take open every time you open the wardrobe. There's something else inside of it, 
either an actor, uh, which and the actors always in, in our piece um, were uh, always hovering somewhere between alive and not alive. Um, and and so yeah, it's a or a prop, and you're meant to take these out and put them out on this virtual stage. Meanwhile, people in the real world audience are looking at you do this action, not only as yourself, um, as a person in a headset, <laughs> but also projected. Um, they see you actually taking the things out as, I guess, because you're basically a hat and some gloves and, I mean, hands and uh, a shirt. Um, and you're, so they see this double of you doing these things in the virtual world. Um, and uh, that's the, the whole thing. You do that until you get sick of it. And, but the dolls, the, the actors uh, have behaviors of their own um, also. And there's things that happen in the world, you know, also um, of, the, of that virtual theater. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's, uh, that's the whole project. It was really, really important for us to do that at that time to um, get out of our rut, I suppose. And now you're going to have two shows that are upcoming, one at the Momentary in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is an old yeah. cheese factory turned to a contemporary art space for visual and performing arts. And then a second show inside the online space called Feral Life. Feral so, File. I'm sorry, Feral File. Tell mm -hmm. me what you're creating inside of these two different contexts and how they connect to each other. They don't connect to each other. Well, okay, they always connect to each other. Um, since since we um, during the pandemic, let me start it that way. <laughs> during the pandemic, I leaned into the fact that I wanted to make sculpture um, and had my first uh, solo show at Bitforms Gallery in New York City during lockdown, <laughs> which was it felt like something I had been training for my whole life. I had no yeah, problem with like being virtual. Of course, you had like, to do it. Of you had to do it during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, when I couldn't <laughs> actually go, and we didn't know if it was going to open, and all this other stuff. So it was real big virtual aspect to it uh, as well. And it was around that time um, where I realized that the digital work that I had been creating all along was suddenly also valued um, because, you know, outside of games, uh, digital work. Uh, was underappreciated, let's say, um, by the art world and by everyone. Let's let's be real here. Um, and so it seemed like there was a moment um, during the during when my show opened where it seemed like a possibility was there um, to show, for showcase. You know, the fact that I had been making all these digital objects all along. Um, 3D modeling has been my my life, I guess, you know, <laughs> for the past, um, like, I don't know, 20 years. Um, and so um, to create uh, sculptures not, that were not only physical sculptures, but also digital, also yeah. because people could see these works um, virtually uh, as AR sculptures. Um, this was uh, something I didn't know could, you know, could be a thing actually i don't know how else to put it you know but i was really happy that it was and so um and that was of course during this time when um people started selling nfts also and so suddenly it became a moment where people wanted to collect these uh virtual sculptures as if they were real and i felt that this was oh finally you know was basically my reaction to that the thing about sculpture is um it, it touches back to, um, in some ways, a, a conclusion that I came to when I 
had the burn experience burnout in 2011 was that, you know, sometimes things don't have to move. You know, sometimes things can be simply what they are, you know. So what is the material that I'm working with really? You know, I got very essential, as I said, you know, at that time, but it's something that I kept with me when I stopped making video games was my material is polygons. You know, this is a real material to me. This is a physical material. The idea that I can paint with material, the fact that I'm sculpting math, you know, has been um, something magical to me. I'm, I'm looking at my old sketchbooks here next to next to me, and, and I, I'm often talking about the ways that, you know, I have a sketchbook from 2000 and I don't know what this is, six, seven, and another one that's from, you know, just a couple of years ago. And both of them say the same thing. I've been saying the same thing my whole career about this, this notion of the digital and magic and illusion and uh, feeling and, you know, and all this. And I feel that um, sculpture has always done that to me, you know, has always been this thing that maybe even if it doesn't move in some ways, the context that moves around it um, makes that makes the meaning of the work also. Um, so anyway, uh, get back to these two shows that are upcoming. I don't want to say too much about them. However, um, at the momentary, I'm doing it, it will be the largest exhibition that I, physical exhibition that I've held, um, and it is really about taking um, the space and making it into um, a space that has rules, uh, an empty room. But suddenly, because the sculptures are there, there are certain rules that must be adhered to. It's about borderlessness between the digital and the physical, very much. So there are going to be sculptures which float between these two um, realms, in some ways talking about the, the ambiguous quality that uh, digital and physical have today, um, which is something that I feel like I'm always addressing in my sculpture, even when it's just about trying to make something beautiful. <laughs> um, you know, this beauty that can transcend, um, you know, uh, space, time, you know, that real time, and it always comes back, you know, so it's going to be uh, completely virtual pieces and also uh, physical objects. Feral File, yeah, that's something else, because that is definitely, uh, being that that is an NFT show, um, it's, uh, but a well-respected space, I'll say, Feral File is uh, run by Casey Reese. Um, one of those uh, old school um, net artists, uh, well, I wouldn't call him a net artist, but digital artist, um, someone I respect greatly. And he's create, managed to create a space um, that isn't just about uh, just about being a marketplace, but it's about um, the exhibition, the idea of an online exhibition, which is something we all kind of became used to during the pandemic. But now, um, now that it's not that anymore, how can you even understand what an online show is? You know. Um, how can you create a venue for that um, and for artists who, are, who take uh, digital work seriously? You know, it's not just, um, you know, it's not just a, um, yeah, how do I, put it? <laughs> it's not just about the ugly JPEGs, but it's, it's about the work, uh, the actual work that a lot of us have been doing um, all along uh, with digital does, media. How does Feral File as a kind of um, space change the rules and the contours of an online exhibition? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the beauty of it is that you really feel like you you got to bring your A game. I got to say that, you know, because the works there that have been um, shown there are by, um, by and large, some of the best uh, digital artworks that um, 
I, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of negative that can be said about NFTs, but a positive that I've seen from it is that a lot of digital artists feel the need to make their best work again. You know, it's like, I think this is something that was disappearing when it was just about posting for likes on Facebook or having a good Tumblr stream. You know, it's like now it's like we have something that we can take there's something seriously. something at stake. <laughs> yeah, something at stake. But and, and yeah, something at stake and something to really be proud of also, you know, a place that um, I think that this happens more and more now that the work isn't as taken for granted, you know, um, and so therefore you feel like um, this is a moment to really try and say something um, that is going to be seen by people and, and valued, let's say, which is, you know, of course, all the usual caveats. It's not always like that, you know, and I'm not always bitter about like the art world's approach to digital media, but sometimes <laughs> um, uh, I think that um, the work that I'll be showing there is I'm leaning into my polygons again. And um, also it probably will be, be more um, taking it to that basic uh, love of, um, of what a digital object is, um, its materiality. Um, there'll possibly also be some um, motion in there, um, motion studies, perhaps. Um, and then there's a live component. A motion <clears throat> there's um, a live component to these. There's a streaming live component to. There can be. No, not, okay. not to what I'm going to do. Not okay. what I'm to what I'm going to do. Um, but this is always a possibility. <laughs> That's what's going on there now. Nice. Um, yeah. This is great. This is um, I like um, coming to this place of the NFTs, which of course there's a lot more to talk about, and um, we can save that for yeah. another conversation because it opens up a whole other way of thinking about digital art, of a, of a, of circulating, of owning, of yeah. exhibiting, etc. Thank you for this. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. It gives me it gives a good oversight not only to your career but also to a kind of history historical moment um, that yeah. I can completely relate to. And I've also gone through similar phases that you kind of lay out. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been great to, to know you all these years and to think back on what we have seen. Right. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, so thank yeah, you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, let's continue. <laughs>